Welcome to Rome. This is The Bittersweet Life with Katie Sewell and Tiffany Parks. Hello, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. Tiffany is away this week dealing with all of her many things to deal with. And instead, I have a friend of mine here. You want to introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Lisa Wilcox. I'm Katie's buddy from the People's Pub days many, many years ago. Should we describe what the People's Pub was? I mean, if everybody doesn't already know, it's kind of... <laughs> <laughs> I don't mind. It's implied it's a pub for the people. <laughs> it's the People's Pub, so that's what it is. We were co-waitresses at the People's Pub, which is a German pub in Ballard, yeah. the best neighborhood ever. In Seattle. In Seattle. And Katie trained me on the floor. Did I? I didn't remember. Yeah, you did. And um, our friend Keith trained me behind the bar. See, I remember you being a bartender. I don't remember you doing the floor very much. Yeah, I did it all. I was a full, <laughs> full service employee of the People's Pub. I could run that place, I tell you what. Probably still could. Yeah, that was back in our youth. Was that our youth back then? It feels like it when I think about it now. I was in my 20s when I started. Yeah, I, was, I started there in 2000, so I was probably about 23 or 4. No. I'm 30. I'm 39. <laughs> I'm 39. Okay. Are you 39? I just turned 40 last week. Did you? Really? Wow. Uh, you want to talk excited. about that? Yeah, sure. How's it feel? <laughs> exactly the same. <laughs> uh, it feels like I'm 27, except I get worse hangovers now. <laughs> That's pretty much the difference. Yeah, you pretty much look the same, too, I feel. I know. Thank, Thank you. Wow. We look so good. <laughs> Why are we not that? aging? <laughs> Why are we on the radio? <laughs> I know. Face for radio. That's what they say. So you're just visiting town, which is why I thought I'd capture this moment to have you come talk. Where are you visiting from these days? I live in Boston now. Yeah, I'm in graduate school at Emerson College. I decided to take a quick whirlwind five-day trip to Seattle. For your birthday? No, for my friend's wedding. Yep, there was a wedding on Saturday, but I did parlay it. I made myself a beach bingo, <laughs> beach blanket bingo party on Thursday to celebrate. Yeah. Well, one of the reasons I thought we should talk is long before I ever went to Rome, I think you were one of the people I knew who had actually gone and lived overseas back probably when I thought that was something I would never, <laughs> ever do in a thousand years. Well, where did you go? Well, when I first met you, I met you in 2004. I had just moved to Seattle from Norway. So I went to the north of Norway for a little while to be an au pair to my friends. They had twins. And I met the twins when they were like two months old. And then their mom at about six months old, we were chatting and I said, oh boy, I'd love to come back and hang out with the kids and hang out with you and your husband. And she was like, really? (laughs) Is that really true? Or are you just kind of you know, doing that thing that I do, which is to say things that maybe aren't (laughs) completely making commitments that I can't keep or something. And she said that she was really itching to get like a summer fun job and not be with the kids all the time. And so she said, come and stay for the summer. So I did. Yeah, it was the the north of Norway, the most beautiful place on the planet. How was it taking care of somebody else's kids all day? Uh, in another language, it was challenging. <laughs> yeah, did you? That's a good question. Did you speak at all the language? I did. I learned to speak. I started learning to speak Norwegian in Boston. I was a high-end watch dealer 
in Boston for what? What? No. <laughs> Some people don't know that. that Is would that happen. why you have a watch tattooed on your arm? That's <laughs> part of it. Okay. It was part of the inspiration. Yeah. Which I, <laughs> funnily enough, just recently showed my boss who I worked for as a high-end watch dealer. I finally had the courage to show him my tattoo. It was like showing it to my father or something like, I got a watch tattooed on my arm. He was like, why? <laughs> And he's like, why didn't you pick a higher end watch than the one you tattooed on your arm? Why'd you pick that crappy looking one? Why didn't you get a nice watch on your arm? So yeah, so I was a high end watch dealer in Boston and I was young. I was like in my early 20s and we did a lot of business with a fellow who had a Swedish secretary because, you know, I don't know. They work cheap. I'm not really sure. Yeah, No offense to the Swedish people. It's bad enough that I went to Norway and not Sweden. Right. Yeah. So she and I started to become friends. We were both in our 20s, and she had her finger on the pulse of the Scandinavian community. And so I became friends with all of them and started to just get curious about the language. And I found that I was kind of good at the accent, and I just stuck with it. Are you always a person who's good at languages? Was that sort of your thing? It was. I always really liked language and studying language. And I think that we all, you know, have that capacity to be good at language I think motivation is a huge piece of it and you're like oh really tell me more about how everyone's good at language (laughs) Um, yeah I I think so I studied linguistics in undergrad so I really think that there's this inherent ability of your brain to pick up language and patterns and maybe some people are more visual and maybe some people are more whatever the other thing is auditory thank you <laughs> I study speech I don't know what that word is. auditory anyhow did I get did I get tangential where was I oh, I was in Boston yeah <laughs> you're you're learning Norwegian oh yeah so then the people that I lived with and um was the au pair to their kids they became really good friends to me and so we practiced Norwegian a lot and also we spoke English together a lot. So the kids spoke English too or were they only speaking Norwegian? The kids were babies. (laughs) They didn't speak. They weren't speaking at all. We like to imagine that um, one of them spoke when I left but I'm pretty sure he was just like a burp or something. (laughs) Yeah so it wasn't that you were babysitting kids that were speaking a totally different language than you. No. Just being in the community and stuff, I usually spoke Norwegian. I liked speaking Norwegian, and I was lucky to be in an area that was less proficient in English as a, as a community. So there was a lot of opportunity to speak Norwegian. And I talked to the kids in Norwegian, too. Let's be honest, I did. I liked speaking Norwegian, and it felt like they knew certain words. I feel like you think that kids understand what you're saying maybe earlier than they actually do. So you're like, oh, I'll speak in your native tongue. <laughs> then you'll understand everything I'm saying. Get off the stove. <laughs> you know? So, yeah. I don't know what you're saying. Yeah, I don't even know if I can say get off the stove in Norwegian. You want to give it a try? Um, no. <laughs> None of it's coming to me at all. I don't know if this would be a question that you could answer. Probably not. But do you have any theory since you've studied linguistics and you think about this stuff a lot? If a kid is being raised by parents where one is speaking English and one is, say, like in Tiffany's case, speaking Italian, Mm -hmm. do you think it would take the kid longer to speak in general? Or do you think it doesn't really matter? I think often it takes children longer to speak when they're getting two different sort of stimulus languages. But when they do start to speak, 
they are proficient in two languages and that's really great for your brain and what they find is that the vocabularies in each language are smaller but not in a way that would be detrimental to their lexicon so to speak they would have full capacity in both languages they might just not know the word lexicon or something (laughs) maybe they might not know those big fancy speech language pathology words yeah Yeah. what are you studying in grad school i'm studying speech language pathology (laughs) so why that's a really good question (laughs) so like you were saying i'm sort of i like studying language and I studied in undergrad linguistics which is the theory of language and the study of language with a capital L so understanding how languages work how syntax works like the order of the words and how sounds are put together to add meaning to a word that's such a poor definition I'm sure that there's linguists cringing like to hear that definition but it's basically the study of capital L language so speech is not that speech is more assessing and treating and diagnosing communication disorders and swallowing disorders. What are swallowing disorders? Well, <laughs> well, it's when you have difficulty swallowing oh. or eating. Mm-hmm. All right, I was just seeing it, but... Yeah, it's just what it sounds like. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Some sort of medical term. So when it comes to, like, speech disorders and linguistics going together, is there, are they somehow related, like the two studies? Yeah, sure. I mean, there are people that have disorders and delays in every aspect of communication. So it can be anything from having difficulty creating speech sounds with your articulators, with the parts of your mouth, your voice, and your maybe your respiration. Or it can be something to do with finding actual words. Like if you're trying to create an utterance if you're trying to say something and you don't have access to your the sort of language center in your brain that's one aspect of what we do and so linguistics ties into that you have to know what language is supposed to be before you can sort of help facilitate language and someone who has difficulty accessing it or facilitating speech for someone who has difficulty making speech sounds the study of linguistics still just maybe it was the way you described it i don't know <laughs> It like raises so many questions, but at the same point, it somehow has paralyzed me from figuring out how to ask you those questions. Thinking about how a language is put together mm-hmm. makes me feel like I don't even know how to ask you the questions about how language is put together. Well, I mean, how language is put together is such a broad thing to say. I'm, I'm imagining right now the first thing that comes to my mind is, um, let's see, so linguistics is sort of broken up into components. There's phonetics, which is making sounds, like so making the sound S, like S, right? Just the standalone sound S. So just an S does so much to words, right? So it pluralizes words and it gives a possessive to words, right? So that's two things that it does right off the bat. So if I'm trying to say the cats, right? So that could mean multiple cats or the cat's dish, right? So that's phonetics like this. Actually, it's not. It's also morphology. This is a terrible, terrible. (laughs) I graduated in 2009. I forget all of these things. But I'm following your train here. So So that's also within that S. So like that addition of an S to the word cat, that's called morphology. So that part of the word creating a sort of a meaning to the word. So anything like adding an ED to the end of a word creates a past tense and 
adding N-E-S-S to the end of a word creates a noun out of an adjective. So that's morphology. So that's another aspect of linguistics. There's phonology, which is um, the way that different sounds that we find in phonetics change based on the word that they're attached to. So like cats versus dogs. So cats is a voiceless sound. It's just S. You don't vibrate your vocal folds to make it. So it's cats versus dogs. So if you are to touch your throat here, you can see that the S at the end of dogs turns into a Z sound because the preceding sound has a voice. So dogs versus cats. Did that make sense? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, so that's like a phonology. So the way that sounds change and phonology can apply to anything from like a tonal language where if you add a certain tone to a word, it changes the meaning. Like in Chinese, there's tones and Vietnamese, there's tones to language. So what else is there? Syntax. So like if I were to say, I'm going to Katie's house, that's like a statement. If I want to turn that into a question, how would I do that? I'm going to Katie's house. <laughs> That's a really great example. Yes. So that would be um, a prosodic change to a sentence to turn it into a question. So it goes from I'm going to Katie's house with the sort of downturn versus I'm going to Katie's house. There you go. You've just made like linguistically, you've just added so much to, <laughs> to a statement to just create new meaning, Katie. I'm so impressed. Somehow Katie's house sounds less appealing in the second <laughs> I'm going to Katie's house. Are you sure? Can I go to any other house, really? <laughs> That's another one, too. So you can add prosody to any part of the, the sentence to, again, change the meaning again. So like, I'm going to Katie's house. I'm going to Katie's house? <laughs> Wait, I'm going to Katie's house? <laughs> yeah, and if my house was bigger, it could be I'm like, I'm to Katie's house. <laughs> I'm <to> Katie's house. <laughs> so yeah, so these are all things that linguists have written many papers about is like that little fun thing, right? What about how so many languages change to have a male or female ending to them? That's so funny that you <laughs> did. You... That was a terrible description. Also, right? So that's called that's called gender. So <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> that's one of the uses of the word gender. Um, so I wrote my thesis about that. In... <laughs> wow, I... we're not preparing. Boring, <laughs> boring subject for most people. So um, let's see. So Norwegian has three genders, right? Really? Okay. Yeah. Tell me more. In sort of colloquial Norwegian, there's really two genders, but there is a third gender that kind of sticks around for words like book and, I don't know, cow. <laughs> like, those old words um, <laughs> have kept their feminine. Yeah, wife, you know, things like yeah. that. So what is the third gender, though? It, it, it's like non-definable. It's just a thing that applies to books and things. No, that's the feminine. Oh, actually. Okay, that's yeah. the feminine. Okay. The feminine is sort of getting wheedled out. It's mostly neuter and, and masculine now. It's a man's world, Katie. <laughs> Jeez, and why was cow feminine? I don't know. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I think you think of a cow as a girl, don't you? No, I don't. I think of a cow as a boy and a sheep as a girl. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I didn't expect you to say that. I think of a cow as... Okay. Um, I think of a dog as a boy. A lot of people think of dogs as boys, That's right? That's true. I do yeah. consider dogs boys. Yeah. Yeah. And cats are girls. But no, cows, I mean, think about it. They're dairy cows. They're, That's a good point. they're girls. 
That's a very good point. I think of the bull as the boy. Right. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. <laughs> it's early. And I woke up at three in the morning. Yes, you did. Um, I'm really surprised that your eyes are open. I'm here. I'm here. Okay. So, but they're phasing out the women. But wait a minute. <laughs> you were sending a really confusing message about Norway. <laughs> All right. Clear it up. Okay. I'm going to just have you talk. Oh, good. Okay. Go ahead. Well, so I, I want to just disclaim okay. that I wrote this paper a very long time ago. So it's fuzzy at best. But in Norwegian, there are three genders, masculine, feminine, and neuter. So each noun has one of those genders assigned to it. The thing that's really interesting to me about it is that speakers, native speakers, know what gender everything is and they don't even think about it it's like it's like they know to add the component parts to the word like we know that when we mean something's plural you add an s they know that if i'm talking about this word that it's a masculine word so adjectives match nouns so the red house so a house is neuter so the word red gets the neuter ending to modify house so what would that sound like so a house is hus, so rött is red when it's modifying a neuter. So what would it red be if it was modifying a masculine? Rö. And a feminine? <laughs> Rö again. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. And in fact, your microphone says it's like rö, röde. It's like plural red. Oh, really? Yeah. Huh. Yeah. That's the brand. <laughs> Well, it's many, many red things. That's what, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so go on though. I derailed you. Oh, that's okay. I'm so easily derailed. (laughs) I'm like, what, one eighth of a cup of coffee? (laughs) Um, So let's see. So they just know what. They just know. Yeah. So I wanted to understand if second language learners of Norwegian or not first language learners of Norwegian would have an easier time picking up gender attributes if they had already studied another language with gender in the past so people who studied spanish before and then which gendered language they studied before whether it looked more like norwegian or if it looked more like like a romance language italian and spanish and french all have gender they have two genders the way that for example in spanish gender is a little bit more transparent like you can kind of tell what gender a word is going to be based on what the word looks like so if a word ends in o if a noun ends in o often it is a masculine noun and there are exceptions if a word ends in cion it's often feminine um, and there are again exceptions as a learner of spanish you sort of get that gimme like okay this is going to be a masculine noun and I can kind of tell that because of the O at the end. So I know that when I'm going to make it red, that I have to make it rojo versus roja. So if someone has gone through that, creating that feature of the language in their brain before learning something like Norwegian, where it's a little bit less obvious, is it easier for them? And then if they studied that first gendered language within a sort of critical period, that quote unquote critical period of learning languages when you're supposed to be really, really spongy about it, does that then affect how well you learn a third, less transparent gender? Did you come to a conclusion? Well, my, um, <laughs> my sample size was six. <laughs> so no. And no, <laughs> but I sure did make it seem like it when I finished the paper. But um, no, it, 
I think the consensus is that having a gender feature in your brains, like a grammar, so to speak. So if your mind thinks of gender as something important to know about in a language, then it remains part of like your learning apparatus. This is such a bad <laughs> bunch of like, there's linguists like that if they heard me say this right now and speech pathologists, if they heard me say this stuff, take away her license. Well, she's still in grad school. So for those of you who are picking up pen and paper to write, yeah. put it down. <laughs> um, so then under that theory, would that mean that English being a non-gendered language, we would arguably have more trouble learning a gendered language than say somebody who speaks Spanish would have learning Norwegian? Yes, that is the, the short answer. Yes, people who don't have gender at all. The understanding is that it, there's a lot more difficulty there. And they found that, like, for example, if I was a Dutch speaker and I wanted to learn German, then I would have an easier time picking up the gender of German than I would if I was a Spanish speaker that was trying to learn German because there's more similarities. There's more, like, one-to-one -one correspondence with, like, a cow being a girl, for example, in both languages <laughs> and in every language all across the world. <laughs> all right, fair enough. <laughs> You know, it's because I, I did a comic as a kid that was based around a pig's life. Uh, and the pig was a boy. Um, and he had a girlfriend who was a sheep. A sheep. <laughs> um, although, you know, what actually happened between the two of them is a little foggy. Because I was, I was a kid and maybe they were just friends that liked to look at each other across the pasture. But, but a cow did appear one time. And it was a boy. That's okay, Katie. <laughs> you know, I mean, as a kid, we don't have that really understanding of the complexities of <laughs> animal relationships. Right. And, and gender. Yeah. It's all new. Would you say that um, your experience in Norway has informed your journey since then as far as what you became interested in and why? Yeah, so the linguistics part had a lot to do with Norway and my experience learning Norwegian. So that's why I went into linguistics in the first place. I originally, so I moved to Seattle in order to go to University of Washington and my idea was to study Scandinavian studies and I wanted to study linguistic interactions in Scandinavia with people who were asylum seekers, the sort of incorporation of Arabic into Scandinavian languages. So some people have written papers about Swedish and Turkish and how um, some of the communities that they created, language evolved from it. So Turkish and Swedish, there's this, I think it's like kebabsvensk, they call it. So it's like kebab Swedish. So just certain words, and I can't tell you which words they are, are incorporated into the Swedish language and they become part of the, whatever, the lexicon. <laughs> so I wanted to do that with Arabic and Norwegian. But then when I got into it, I found it to be less what I was after. I felt it was going to turn into a really big theoretical thing. And I'm not really interested in doing research for theory. I wanted to do something more applicable to an everyday, like right now situation. My dad had an accident a couple of years ago and he needed a speech pathologist to help him with swallowing and with like respiratory support when he was speaking. And so I realized at that point that speech-language pathology was more than articulation therapy, which is a really interesting part of speech pathology, but not necessarily what I wanted to do. And so I was like, wow, speech pathology is a lot bigger than just that. 
there's so much that you can do to help people in a one-on-one situation and in a clinical setting it just appealed to me so much more it was just more of something I could touch so when we picture what you're going to be doing where are you working like who are you working with in the future well (laughs) right now I just started a new placement at a community hospital outside of Boston and I mostly am working with people who have post-concussional syndrome so doing a lot of executive functioning which is like planning and decision making and organization and and symptom management so when you have a concussion and you try to do too much cognitive work a lot of times what happens is you'll have symptoms it can be headaches or dizziness fatigue any number of symptoms and so what we like to do is to try to put some strategies in place for our patients so that they can rest their sort of their they they can do Gosh, my words. <laughs> Isn't that, that's irony, right? Yeah. No. <laughs> Is it? I'm not sure. I'm not sure what that means. People always say I use irony wrong. Like, I'll say that's ironic and they'll be like, actually, no, that's not ironic. That's not what I <laughs> I know. There was that reality bite scene when Ethan Hawke gets into the elevator or something and she's like, who knows what irony is? And he's like, well, irony is when you, when the real meaning of something it goes directly against what, you, I don't know, yeah. he defined it correctly. Yeah. <laughs> I should watch that movie again, is what you're saying. Just to learn what irony means. (laughs) And so should I, apparently. I was talking about speech. Yeah, (laughs) concussions. What happens with concussions? Uh, If you're working too hard cognitively and you have a a concussion, you'll have these symptoms, right? So what we like to do is give them a, a way to rest their cognition to get them back on track and managing their symptoms and cutting down their symptoms and being able to continue their day because it can completely derail an entire day just because you were thinking too hard (laughs) yeah so how do you do that I mean I've had two concussions so I'm just curious have you really yeah oh my gosh is this bad is this like is it gonna be terrible for my future (laughs) (laughs) I am a doctor and I will tell you (laughs) yes you're screwed no of course not it's um how long ago did you have your concussion i had one when i was in rome uh if you want to hear all about it you can (laughs) i think the episode is called hospital i did hear that episode i think because you had a really interesting experience and good experience at the hospital didn't you it was okay oh maybe i didn't hear it it was because the fuzzy headedness did not go away for weeks you know so i was starting to get concerned that i'd actually done some real damage well, it is damage, right? <laughs> so basically, your the axons that connect the neurons of your brain to the next neuron, it gets sort of stretched out and damaged. And the material that surrounds that axon is has been sort of compromised. And so while it's regenerating and repairing itself, you have to sort of take it easy on your brain. But you don't want to shut off your brain, which is what a lot of like traditional concussion treatment is. You just <laughs> you're welcome. helping me get my coffee. <laughs> you you want to do like active rest, kind of like if you were to hurt your a bone in your body or a muscle in your body was compromised. You wouldn't completely stop doing anything forever. You would for a period of time, the initial period of time. But following that, you have to condition yourself to return to normal, right? So you wouldn't expect that if you tore your ACL or something that you would just sit quietly for six weeks and then stand up and run a marathon you know you have to get back to it so what we do is we teach people how to increase their cognitive load whether time-wise or load-wise to sort of get them back up and running 
Yeah. And does it matter at all? I'm, now I'm diverting into my own problems. <laughs> <laughs> and we are running out of time, so I will um, divert quickly. Does it matter if you've gotten the concussion on the same side of the head twice? I am not qualified to answer that question. I don't know. <laughs> so, you know, sometimes I feel like that side of my head just feels different than the other side. I don't. Did you have imaging done of your brain? Uh, not for a long time. But, but not since, no, not since the second concussion, no. Okay. So, that's Boy, should I? I know. <laughs> my face goes stark. <laughs> like, you didn't have pictures taken. <laughs> my supervisor, my supervisor, who is... Uh, she's like in her early 30s she's super cool well I shouldn't she's really cool <laughs> fine to <Yeah>. say that <laughs> anyhow she um, always says she's a real stickler about if you hit your head take a picture if you hit your head get a CT scan get a get an MRI get something just because you never know and of course she's a speech pathologist who helps people with concussions every day and so that's something that's on the brain, so to speak, for her. Um, and so she's uh, she's just a real stickler about that. Get a picture taken. All right. So it's not too late? Maybe I'll... I don't know. <laughs> it was like a year ago? Uh, yeah, two years ago, maybe. You're, you're probably not having a hemorrhage or anything. <laughs> we would know by now. Good. Okay. Do, do you think you'll ever uh, live overseas again? Is that something that you want to do? Yeah, that's one of the appeals to the field that I'm in. I can do... Speech pathology, as far as the swallowing goes, I can do that anywhere. I think about going back to Norway where they'll let me stay for more than three months because that's just been the hugest difficulty for so many years. I had a friend, and I still have this friend, who runs a... It's called Uobua, and it's basically fishermen's housing from the old days, and they've converted it to a really beautiful place to stay, like vacation rentals. And she was like, oh, it would be great for you to come for a year. She travels a lot to South America. It would be great for you to come and be able to run the place. And and we'd love to hire you for a year. And we went through all of the immigration stuff. And it just, they just said no. They just wouldn't, there was no reason that I should be doing it and not somebody else. And we went through all the appropriate channels. And I speak the language. And I have hotel and restaurant experience. And they just didn't think that it was enough. So as a, a licensed professional, I think I'd have a little easier time getting to spend a year in Norway doing work with the geriatric community or something. Wow. Yeah. Well, we should leave it there. <laughs> I'm going to go get my brain scanned. <laughs> I'm going to go look up the definition of linguistics. <laughs> and irony. And irony. <laughs> Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Katie. All right. This is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. Bye. <laughs> Thanks for all the ways you support us. Give us a good rating on iTunes, maybe five stars if you like the show. It will help other people discover that we exist. Thank you. You're the best. <laughs>